This is uh, part seven, and this is uh, the hope of heaven, heaven according to Paul, or I was tempted to say what Paul has taught me about heaven. Uh, When we, Jeanette and I, before we were married, we worked on an island called Blake Island that was a few miles off the the port of Seattle. We would go out there and and work at this uh, kind of an authentic Indian village where they would barbecue salmon over a fire. It was really good stuff. It was also a time when we were in a 16-foot boat with uh, with 500 pounds of fresh salmon and killer whales are, are moving along outside. And I was just hoping and praying they had no idea that lunch was so close. But one day when the waters were rough, there were a couple of fellows out in a speedboat and they uh, they flipped the boat and they ended up in the bay. And, and I want to tell you, it was cold. And so they brought them in and they and they laid them beside the fire where the salmon were, and and uh, actually, I have to tell you, the fellow we worked for wanted one of us to take our clothes off and get in and warm them up, and I, I have to admit, that's where I drew the line. I'd give the guy a hot rock. <laughs> I, was not, I was not going farther than that. But when this fellow came to consciousness and saw the flames of that fire, I have never heard a guy yell so loud, thinking he was in hell literally thinking he had ended up in hell. And and uh, so it reminded me of, of this whole near-death experience. I don't suppose this guy wrote a book on the subject. But when I looked on Amazon.com and did a search on a sort of life after life or life after death, 204 books popped up on on the screen that are written on that subject. And the one that was at the very top was called The Big Book of Near-Death Experiences, The Ultimate Guide to What Happens When We Die. Isn't that tragic? I, I would have to tell you, folks, this is the ultimate book on what happens when we die. But when we think about death and the hereafter and we think about people with near-death experiences, it seems to me you have to say that the Apostle Paul was one who could have written the ultimate book on life after death. And we'll talk about those texts. But you remember in Acts chapter 14, he is stoned and left for dead. And if I know his opposition, they probably made sure he was good and dead. And, and then the, the uh, saints gathered around him and he got up and, and, uh, and went on. And then I think he describes that to some extent in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll talk about that. The thing that interests me is that the one who could have said the most about heaven is very tight-lipped on the subject. If you look at all of the things that Paul says about heaven, it's a pretty small list. Uh, he has many opportunities to go there, but he chooses not to. And, and that perhaps ought to be instructive to us. So what I'd like to do in this lesson is to look at those two texts, Acts chapter 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, and, and, and see this uh, after-death experience of Paul's and what he makes of it. And, and, and then to look at some other texts that we could say, a deal with the subject of heaven, and note what Paul has to add to his words about heaven. 
and then focus mainly on uh, the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5 that was read today and talk about some of the implications and applications of that. So let's look first of all at Acts chapter 14 and, and see this experience uh, that Paul has had. This is the first missionary journey, and, and uh, Paul has, has uh, uh, been in, in various places, and he now ends up at Lystra in verse 8. And there's sitting there a man who is lame from birth. And, and uh, Paul perceives that this man has the faith to be healed. And so he says to him in verse 10, Stand upright on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. And here's where things really begin to happen. This is very pagan. Uh, they had there a temple devoted to the worship of Zeus. And, and so immediately people draw the conclusion that this is really a divine encounter with Zeus and with Hermes. Now, in their way of thinking, the, the god, the big god, the, the big, uh, uh, big wig god was the one who kept quiet. And, and his second in command was the one who did all the talking. <laughs> and, and so they assumed that uh, it was uh, Barnabas who was Zeus and that it was Paul who was Hermes. He was the one doing the talking. He was the spokesman. And so they begin now to gather up uh, things to offer a sacrifice to them as gods. And as the text goes on, uh, Paul and Barnabas are very, very zealous to shut this thing down. But Luke tells us that it was with great difficulty that they finally convinced these people not to offer those sacrifices. What is interesting then is that as, as the story goes on, we see that Jews arrive from Antioch. These are people who are clearly opposed to Paul and the preaching of the gospel. And it says that they won the multitudes over and then stoned Paul. Now I have to say to you, of all the things that make me curious about this text is how in the world, I can understand how these people would, would uh, wrongly interpret what, what Paul has done and, 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 and think of that in their own pagan theological system. But what did these Jews from Antioch have as, as sort of leverage to turn this crowd from one that wants to worship these men as gods to a crowd that now wants to stone them because they've been somehow demonized. And I say that because Jews loathe Gentiles. So it isn't as though there's this close camaraderie between these Jews and these pagans. They are miles apart. But somehow in their unbelief, if, if Paul and Barnabas don't fit their theological model... And if these Jews come along and offer some other explanation, all of a sudden, it's almost like the triumphal entry. They're hailing them on the one hand as divine, and, and not long later, they're picking up stones to do them in. And so the text tells us that uh, in, in verse 19, that they stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, I don't think that these folks would have really uh, left him uh, in any condition where there was any, any hope of him being alive, but there at least is that description. And then while the disciples gather around him, everybody else apparently goes home, 
Paul arises and enters the city. So he's got to be shaken off this pile of stones that's on him and, and, and now goes back into the city. And then the next day he goes on uh, to Derby and preaches the gospel there. And then they return back to Lystra. And they, in the midst of doing that, they encourage those who have come to faith saying, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And let me make just a couple of observations about uh, this text. One, note the brevity of the account of Paul's death or near death and his rising uh, back to life. Note the brevity of that. This is the kind of thing that certain people could have made much of, but it is not. It is very simply, uh, and, 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 and that leads to the next point, there is no embellishment, there's no sensationalism about this. If one wanted to make the press, you would have really worked this thing for all it's worth. And, and in my opinion, it was worthy of it. I mean, how many people, if you look at a man who's been lame from death and he gets up, and here's a man who is left for dead and he gets up, that's an incredible story. But Luke chooses to deal with it in a very minimal fashion, and he simply moves on and leaves us uh, with what he has said. The third thing I notice is Paul's courage. He gets up. That would be a great time to be heading right on out of town. Now, as I understand it, they took him out of town to stone him. And then he comes back into town, the very town where those people have stoned him. He now goes back to that town, spends the night. Then he goes off to Derby and continues to preach the gospel, the same gospel that got him stoned. He preaches the gospel, and then he makes a return trip, and he comes back to Lystra. Now, I have to tell you, there's, I, I've got a lot of coward in me, and I think I would have found some other way back home than back through Lystra. But he goes to the very place where they had put him to death. And he says to those people, as they are passing through those, those uh, places where people have come to faith, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what Paul looked like after going through a stoning? I mean, he must have been battered and bruised and and not a pretty sight at all. When he says to them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, I think they'd be inclined to believe him. I mean, he is living proof that it's tough for those who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So... uh, That's an amazing amount of courage. And I would say one more thing. This is early in Paul's ministry. This is his first missionary journey. It seems to me that the courage that you see manifested in Paul's life and ministry after he gets up from that pile of stones is that will characterize his ministry from that point on. In other words, while Luke does not bother to give us very much detail about what's going on here, It seems to me that from this point on, Paul will manifest courage that goes right into the jaws of the lion, right into the face of death, knowing that those stones are probably waiting for him in some other place, some other time. He forges ahead 
uh, and it impacts his ministry. That says to me that when we come to Philippians chapter 1, and Paul now is late in his ministry, is talking about uh, his imprisonment and the fact that he's going to stand before Caesar and he doesn't know exactly what the outcome of that will be. When Paul is talking about, for me to live is Christ and die is gain, I think it goes back here. I think it goes back to Acts chapter 14. He really knew what it was all about. And brother, he knew to die was gain. Did he not? We don't know everything that he saw, but if he saw even a glimpse of heaven, he knows it's better to go than to stay. And that's exactly what he says to us in Philippians. All right, let's take a look then at the text uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Now, I think we need to set a little context uh, to this passage in all of the Corinthian epistles, we know there's one that was that's missing, that's not recorded in our hands. But in his correspondence, we know from 1 Corinthians on that Paul has been dealing with problems in the Corinthian church. And he's been dealing with people who have been the source of those problems. And it's not until late in 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 11 to be specific, where all of a sudden Paul says to them, these people that I've been talking to you about, these people are not even believers. These are people who are messengers of Satan. They are people who are coming as, as angels of light into the church, and they are proclaiming false things to deceive you. And so when you look at verse 13 of chapter 11, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Now, he's, he, he now finds it necessary to begin to, in effect, come to terms with these people because they've been making certain claims. One of them is a claim to apostleship. Another is a claim to be Jews, like Paul. And so in one sense, they're trying to make themselves look uh, pretty much in line with Paul, but they've got clearly a, a different gospel that, that they are proclaiming. So Paul is going to find it necessary, first of all, to contrast himself, and he does this by certain kinds of foolishness, as he describes it, things he would rather not do. But he says, all right, here they are. They say they're Jews. They say they're Hebrews. So am I. What distinguishes them from me? And one word that would answer that question would be suffering. So that he goes through this whole litany. And he says in verse 23 of chapter 11, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. And now he goes through this whole situation of describing all of these things that he's endured for the gospel. And what he's saying is, these guys have not paid the price. You've got to decide who you're going to listen to. The guys who are living the good life and promising the good life to you, or people like myself who are saying through much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom and look at my life. I live that, Paul says. 
So he's had to, to compare himself in terms of his suffering uh, with their uh, success. Then he comes to chapter 12, and now he's dealing with this whole issue of, of visions uh, and revelations. There are a couple of texts uh, in which Paul, uh, or which the scriptures speak about that. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 14, you see, and Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Paul talks about these people in Colossians 2 who are relying upon revelations that they have seen. And so they're claiming to have some kind of a vision or an extra, let's call it extra biblical revelation. And the scripture basically says, watch out. You might just look for a moment at Galatians chapter 1, which is another interesting instance where I think you see the same thing. Paul is there saying, there are people who have come to you with a different gospel. And now listen to what he says in verse 8. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, let him be accursed. What he's saying is, even if we came to you with some new revelation that contradicts God's word and the gospel we preached, it's false. Don't rely on the fact that there's some great claim of revelation, some great claim of vision. And so what Paul is saying is, I really don't want to go there. I really don't want to appeal to visions and extraordinary experiences. But in a sense, these false apostles have pressed me there. And so when you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 12... He's saying, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. If I have to do that, I'll lay out this revelation and say, all right, here's a revelation that God has given to me. Now, it's very interesting the way that he picks his words as you as you uh, read his account in verse 2 and following. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, in other words, at that stage of the game, if this is referring to him at, at literally a point of death, you're not quite sure exactly how that's going on. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven, which I would take it to be the highest heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Now, that's when he goes on and to say, because of the vision and the glory and the splendor of that, the danger of having such a vision is that one would be proud. They've seen something above and beyond what other people have seen. And so he says, God very graciously arranged for me not to be proud. He gave me a thorn in the flesh. And that thorn in the flesh, I asked God to remove three times, and he said, nope, my strength is manifested in weakness. Now, there have been all kinds of speculations about what that thorn in the flesh was. I have no idea. But, I, but the thought occurred to me as I was reading this text, and, and especially Acts chapter 14, wouldn't it be interesting if that thorn in the flesh was some residual injury from that stoning? 
Eh, just a thought. Remember when, when Jacob wrestled with God and all the rest of his life he limped? You wonder, I mean, could he have had some kind of a knee uh, injury or whatever it was that, that basically uh, tormented him for the rest of his life? Whatever it was, it reminded Paul of his weakness in the midst of the glory of those revelations. And consequently, he thought about his limitations and God's working through those limitations rather than through the greatness of his spiritual experience uh, that he had had. And so Paul uh, mentions that to us, I believe, and to his readers because he is dealing with these people who are claiming their own sorts of, of, uh, of revelations. Why Paul doesn't talk? One, because they were inexpressible in human words. If Paul were to go up and see heaven and it's really another dimension, how would you describe that? How would you describe heaven to earthlings who really have no clue and no experience in that realm? It's just words won't describe it. And the second reason I think that Paul doesn't talk is simply because God told him not to. He wasn't permitted to speak. Even if he were capable of expressing what he had seen, he was not permitted to go there. So God basically said, just leave that alone. This was for you. It obviously had a huge impact on his ministry and on his teaching. But that was it. So why does Paul talk? I would say there are two times, two occasions at least. There may probably be more. One of them is to encourage people who are in tribulation. He talks about heaven and the joys of heaven to people who are suffering here and now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is a classic illustration where he talks to those who are under persecution and he says, it's going to come about that God is going to come again. The Lord Jesus is going to come again and he is going to deal with those people who have been harassing you. It's only just that he would do that. But in the same breath, he talks about the joys of heaven. So for those who are suffering persecution, it's good to know what lies ahead in terms of our heavenly bliss. And to correct error. When you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that whole chapter about the resurrection, he says very clearly, uh, why is it that there are some among you who say there is no resurrection? So he's dealing with a refutation of an error that needs to be corrected, and, and he does so in 1 Corinthians 15. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he's dealing with those who say that the day of the Lord has already come. And so once again, he needs to deal with future things because of error that's been uh, taught, and that's why he finds it necessary to speak on those issues. All right, so is there anything for us to learn? I would say this, if Paul was so reticent to speak about his authentic vision, I guess I wouldn't be beating a trail to Amazon.com and reading every one of those 204 books as though they were authoritative. Uh, You know, I'm sure that there's some fascination. And I've heard stories about Christians who have had experiences at the point of death That's all fine. All I'm saying is I would not put that on the level of the word of God. 
I just set that aside. I put that off in a little buffer in my mind, and I say, it's interesting, but if Paul chose not to give me detailed information about his experience under inspiration, then I'm going to put all of that other stuff in another category and say, I probably would not want to call that authentic. And I would, I would hasten to say, most of that, that, that literature that's out there about near-death or after-death experiences doesn't talk about hell and doesn't talk about salvation. And often it gives people a false hope that if they persist in their own stubborn efforts, they're going to make it. That's pretty bad information. I think the other thing I would say is this. I would be very cautious about people who make claims to special revelation. And and that comes back to this warning about visions in Galatians 1 and Colossians chapter 2. Sometimes it's said in more pious terms, but it said, uh, the Lord revealed this to me. The Lord told me this. Now, if what the Lord told them is something outside of Scripture... I would be very, very careful about that. If Paul is not willing to describe something that's authentic, and if he says in Galatians, anything that goes outside of Scripture is just off the table, then I would say I would, I would be very, very careful and cautious about people who are making claims to have, been, to have something revealed to them which was not revealed through God's Word. If that's in the matter of personal guidance and what they do in their life, I'm probably not going to go too heavy on that. If it's something they're telling me that I need to do in my life, I'm going to get really uneasy about that based upon these texts. Okay, let's look at some other key texts. And I only want to look at these momentarily. But look at at, at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that's a huge chapter. But what I want you to notice is in all of that chapter, there is almost nothing said about heaven. Would you not agree? Almost nothing. So what I did as I was looking at these texts is I said, I asked myself the question, what unique information is given to me in this text that pertains to heaven? Here's what I get out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Take a look at two things. One is the nature of the body that we have. It says in verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And the glory of the, of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. I would simply say that, in fact, I, I recently heard somebody talk about heaven as just kind of being a continuation of now and of, of the present and of things that are, but in a, a sort of better way. I see a discontinuity myself. I see continuity between now and then. But when I look at this, what I think that Paul is saying is earthly bodies are one order, heavenly bodies are another order. I see something somewhat different. Now, I know that we'll see and recognize one another, and I don't know how all of that happens, but it seems to me that what he's saying is there is something distinctly different about heavenly bodies. I doubt that we'll know what that is until we get one. And I doubt that we'll care about talking about the old bodies when we do. The second thing I notice from 1 Corinthians 15 is this. 
He says that uh, Christ must reign, verse 25, until he has put all his enemies under his, his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is, the Father has put them under the feet of our Lord, as I understand it, and he has now won the victory. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, he, capital H in my text, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, when everything is placed in subjection to Christ, it's the Father who has sent the Son And so he is the one who has never subjected himself to the Son. But notice what happens in verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. The unique thing I see about this is that when you you think about what Paul is writing about, that all things may be summed up in Christ, there is a sense in which when you look at all the prophecy, it's, it all comes down to Christ and everything is summed up in him. But when he defeats the last enemy, which is death, the son, unlike Satan, who is, who is sort of second in command, so to speak, and he wants to be like God and to move in on God's turf, the son, with all of that authority, hands it back to the father and says, it's all about you. That's a fascinating element that I see in prophecy uh, that I don't see uh, other places uh, emphasize so much. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Uh, it kind of teams up with 1 Corinthians 15. It's about the resurrection of the dead, but it's about the relationship about, uh, of those who are dead and raised to newness of life and those who are alive at the coming, the time of the coming of our Lord Jesus. And, and I want you to fasten your minds on that last part where he says, and thus we will forever be with the Lord. Now, in the text that says that there will be other saints and we will be joined together with them, his last statement on that point is, we will be together, we will be with the Lord. And I've kind of leaned on that last week too, but The ultimate joy of heaven is being in God's presence, not being with our friends as much as that may be a pleasure. It's being in God's presence and and worshiping him. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16, and 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'll just make this brief allusion. 1 Timothy 3 talks about the, the, the fact that we must all stand as believers before our Lord and give account of our lives and what we have done and said. And he says, for those who have, in a sense, messed up and have gotten into heaven by the skin of their teeth, they will be saved yet so as by fire. All the wood, hay, and stubble of our lives will be burned up. We're still going to get there, but we'll get there by the skin of our teeth. But those who have served him and been faithful to him, they will be rewarded. And that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I know that there waits for me a crown. I finished the course. I fought the fight. I followed him faithfully to the end. And I know that there is the reward which awaits me in heaven. Romans 8, 18 through 25 is at the tail end of Paul's teaching on sanctification. Romans chapter 6, the need for sanctification. You died to sin in Christ, you were raised to newness of life in him, 
You ought to live new lives. Romans chapter 7, I know that I ought to live a new life, but every time I try, I hit a brick wall, so to speak. A little rough translation. And, and Paul then says, what do I do? Who will deliver me from this body of death? This body which can't meet God's standards as a believer. Answer in Romans chapter 8, it is the Spirit who raised the dead body of Jesus from the grave. It is he who lives in your bodies and raises your bodies to life and gives you life to live out his instructions and his standards because now it's him doing it, not you. Now, he's very quick in that to make it clear that the Spirit will witness to our status as the sons of God. But when he gets to 18 through 25, he says a couple of things. One, just because the Spirit of God dwells in us doesn't mean we have heaven on earth. He says, in reality, we're living in an earth that is fallen, and it suffers and it groans because it's waiting for the day of the redemption of the sons of God. And I take it that what it means to be a son of God is to be one who is now restored to the way it should have been, so to speak, in, in, in Genesis uh, before the fall, and that creation has somehow taken a hit with the fall of man. And so here's the unique twist that I see in Romans chapter 8. When we look at other heaven texts, they are very heavenly. When I look at this text, it's earthly. And I see now this creation, which has had the adverse effect of fallen men messing it up. That would include oil spills and, and, and the whole like. I mean, the earth is suffering and groaning. If it could speak, you know, there, there's a part of the sea right out there which now would say, Oh, man, uh, what have you guys done to me? Uh, and, and that's going to change. And so the revelation of the sons of man means Creation now being under the rule of men who will serve and rule with Christ over it, and it will be the great joy of, of creation. That's what I see in Romans 8. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, is a great text in this regard. It sums it all up uh, as to what it means to be in heaven and what it means to be in hell. Paul is writing to Thessalonians who have been suffering at the hands of their Gentile peers. He says their suffering is like the suffering of Jews who have suffered under their Jewish, the hand of Jewish peers. And he says it's right, after all, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, verse 6. And then he goes on to say that the Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, here's the key, I think, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. There is the destruction element, but hell is being away from God, being separated from his glory forever. I see that as the essence of hell. And then he says... In verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So heaven is being with Christ, entering into his glory and glorifying him. Hell is to be separated from him and to be distanced from him and the glory that he has facing the penalty of eternal destruction. 
Heaven and hell summed up in those verses. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven through five ten. And I'll just I'll I'll just cruise through that very quickly. I find this very interesting because Paul is talking about the things that he has suffered. So that when I read in verses four, uh, chapter four, verse seven, through verse uh, fifteen, I see Paul talking about death. He says, "Death works in us, but life works in you." It's our dying that brings about life for you, and 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 then he says that God is going to raise, who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us up also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all these things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. He's saying this, suffering and dying if need be, for the sake of the gospel, brings men and women to faith and relationship with Jesus Christ so that when the resurrection comes, we are raised up with them and they give glory to God. So dying for the sake of the gospel is ultimately for the glory of God because people are saved by those who give up their lives and for the gospel, and then those people who are brought to faith give glory to God for what has taken place. Now, when you come to verses 16 and following, you're talking about death in a more normal way. If, if, if the death is the death of sacrifice and the death of martyrdom in those earlier verses, it's not just the death of old age, folks. And every one of us ought to be, ident- be able to identify, and those of us who gray hair can identify more. When Paul says that the outer man is perishing. I mean, do you not see that, folks? You look in the mirror, you try to go exercise, whatever. Man, the outer man isn't doing too well. And it's all for all of us. It's going downhill. There is a, there is a slow death process that is at work in us and it's going to win. And Paul says, in spite of that, and so you have this, this physical, biological downward slope, right? And what he's saying is, the opposite of that is this upward curve because the inner man is being renewed day by day. So as we deteriorate physically, the ideal is that we are growing spiritually in all of that process, and ultimately we are going to be given new bodies and we are going to be forever with him and we're going to be with the Lord. So then he describes in chapter 5 that to be in this body is to be absent from the Lord, that is, absent from his presence in heaven, and to be uh, to be in this body is to be absent with the Lord. To be absent from this body in death is to be present with the Lord. So there's the, the layout of how one, how Paul views death. Death for the benefit of those who will be brought to faith. Death for our own benefit in the sense that we will, though our bodies are deteriorating, we will grow spiritually and ultimately we will be with him for all eternity. Okay, let's make a couple of words of application. I, I made the statement last week that heaven is really more about a person than a place. If you read what Paul has to say about heaven, he simply says amen to that. He talks about it over and over again. Philippians chapter 1, 
it's to be with him. If I die, it's better because I'm going to be with him. If I stay, it's because I'm here and I'm serving you and I'm willing to do that. In in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, to be in hell is to be separate from God. To be in heaven is to be with him, rejoicing and glorifying him. Over and over with Paul, as silent as he is about the details of heaven, the one thing he's always crystal clear on is heaven is being in the presence of God. And hell is not. And I say to you this morning, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus Christ, then there's only one destination for you. Jesus Christ is not only the goal of salvation, being with him. He is the means of it. As Paul says, everything is of him and through him and unto him. It's all about him. Paul wants us to know that just like our Lord Jesus does. I would say secondly, when you, when you share the gospel with people, don't promise people heaven on earth. <laughs> now, I, the, Paul talks about that in, in, in 2 Corinthians uh, as catching with bait. But oftentimes we try to make salvation look so good in earthly terms that we're basically misleading people rather than saying, all who will enter into heaven must do so through tribulation. That's the message of the gospel, and we ought not to soft-pedal that. The other thing I would say is this. When Paul thinks about heaven and he thinks about people, he thinks about them in a very different way than we do. In 2 Corinthians 4, he thinks about heaven in terms of the people who his dying has brought the faith in Jesus Christ and they glorify him. If Paul's desire is to glorify God, then the way in which he does it, or a way in which he does it, is by proclaiming the gospel to lost sinners who in heaven will bow before him and praise God for what he has done. That's the way Paul looks at people. And and then uh, I, I think you see um, uh, perhaps... Also, that there is this element of Paul's joy when he says in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians, who is our joy and who is our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you at the coming of our Lord Jesus? See, I I think so often we tell people, well, isn't it wonderful because we're going to get to heaven and we get to have all this fellowship with all our old friends and and all of that. And, And there's an element of truth there. But it seems to me that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, my joy and my reward is to get to heaven and find people there that somehow through my ministry have at least been helped on their way to heaven. That's my joy. That's my crown that I have. And here's the thing that that interests me that I guess I have not thought about before. I've always thought about the motivation to evangelize as being hell. Isn't that the kind of way you thought about it too? You think, hey, these people out here are going to hell without Christ. That's true. And that ought to motivate us. But that's not really what seems to wind Paul up. What what really motivates Paul is to say, my great joy in evangelizing people is they get to heaven. And when they do, they glorify God. And that's better for God. So it's heaven that motivates Paul, I would say even more than hell, to preach the gospel to lost sinners 
to bring men to faith in Christ, to glorify God for all eternity. And that's what Paul can't wait for. Is that not laying up treasure in heaven? I mean, we always talk about it in money terms, but isn't laying up treasure in heaven really laying up precious souls who will rejoice in the presence of God and bring glory to Him? Man, and Paul's saying, I'm going to see those people there. I am going to see them there when I'm with the Lord. Father, we thank you for uh, Paul and for the marvelous experience that he had, the way in which, as though, even though he appeared to be dead, he rose and, and went about and preached the gospel in places where it was very dangerous to do so. Help us to have that kind of faith and courage. Help us to have before us a view of heaven that is so real that we can leave behind the things of earth happily. Help us to see heaven as a motivation for telling others about the Lord Jesus so they can be saved, they can be there, and they can bring glory to God as they praise him. In Jesus' name, amen.